In the name of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I ran across something interesting called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a fascinating bit of psychology that deals with the relationship between knowledge and confidence. Stated positively, the Dunning-Kruger effect goes something like this. The more you know, the less confident you are. In other words, you know enough to know that you don't know everything. That's why experts in their fields tend to be kind of restrained and equivocating on their comments. They know they don't know everything. The opposite way of saying the Dunning-Kruger effect is the less you know, the more confident you are. Underperformers tend to be brimming with confidence. They know a little bit, and so they think they know everything. You read a book, you scan a wiki article, and you're an instant expert on the topic. This explains many conversations on social media. <laughs> also, first-year seminarians and your college sophomore home on spring break. <laughs> the anonymous questioner in today's gospel is an example of the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Either he's confidently presuming that he's included and that most people aren't, or he's not sure that he's in and he wants to know if he's going to make the cut. Perhaps he's looking around at that crowd following Jesus, 99% of whom have absolutely no clue as to who Jesus is or what he's about. And he's wondering to himself, this bunch can't possibly be saved, can they? Or maybe he's living out on the fringes of Israel, an outsider, and he's wondering, this little band of disciples, are they the only ones who will be saved by the Savior of the world? Will only a few be saved? Or will there be many? How many? How few? Enticing questions, curious questions, inquiring minds need to know. These are one question removed from the famous crux teologorum, the cross of the theologian, and most theologians do need to hang on one now and then, which, which asks, why are some saved and not others? And we know the kind of mischief that that question leads to, either false security or abject despair. Whenever you think of salvation in terms of people who are saved and people who aren't saved, a chosen few, a great multitude no one can count, you are speculating with knowledge you do not have. And if Dunning-Kruger proves accurate here, the less you know on this topic, the more confident you tend to speak. Jesus wisely refuses to answer the question, much less entertain the questioner. Jesus isn't interested in theological speculations or satisf satisfying our spiritual curiosity. He knows the heart of his questioner, and he knows what lies at the heart of the question. 
The who is saved question is inherently a question of judgment, either a judgment of one's fellow man or a judgment of God. Either the answer lies in the heart of man, whether you are good enough, moral enough, religious enough, upright enough to make it through the pearly gates, or it lies in the heart of God, whether it is God's good pleasure to save you. Either the heavenly banquet has limited seating and only a few get to, get to be in, or the doors are thrown open to everybody, but it's up to you to make the right choice to be there. We know where that goes. We're not going there this morning. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Elsewhere, Jesus describes the door that leads to death and destruction as wide and easy, and everybody fits, while the door to salvation is exceedingly narrow. It's as narrow as a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's as narrow as one death on a good Friday afternoon. You see, the narrow door that leads to life is Jesus-shaped, and he alone gets through on his own. You get through not because of yourself. You get through carried along in him by his dying and his rising. And so what's with all the pushing and the shoving and the door slamming shut as people pound on the door and plead to be let in? Kind of sounds like a Tokyo subway in rush hour, doesn't it? The point is what comes next and what they say in view of the shut door and the rebuke, I don't know who you are and I don't know where you come from. Those who are excluded plead their credentials. They don't say, Lord, have mercy. They say, we ate and we drank with you. You taught in our streets. We hung out with you every Sunday or most Sundays. We put an offering in the plate on the way out. We served on all your committees. And we did all this stuff for you. The least you can do is open the door for us. Kind of like slipping a $5 bill in the bouncer's hand. Let us in. I know it's shut, but, you know, we know people who know people around here. And the word of judgment to that sort of credentialing, I don't know you, and I have no idea where you're coming from. Go away, you evil doers. What's startling about this is that it's the insiders who find themselves on the outside weeping and gnashing their teeth. It's the secure Israelite who figures that he has a seat at the table because he's an Israelite, a card-carrying son of Abraham, only to hear that prophetic word, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Certainly the kingdom of God is big enough and broad enough People will stream in, Jesus says, from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from every tribe and nation and people and language. There are plenty of seats available, as many as sons and daughters of Adam. And yet there are those on the outside of shut doors 
pleading their credentials, demanding their right to be let in. The first will be last, the last will be first, the excluded will be included, and the included, excluded. If the person who questioned Jesus saw himself as a card-carrying member of the Israelite country club entitled to dining hall privileges, he's thinking, Lord, only a few are going to be saved, right? Uh, not this unwashed rabble here who's following you, those Samaritans and thieves and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, just the chosen few like me, right? On the other hand, if the person is part of the rabble who has no claim, no entitlement, he might be asking, Lord, are only a handful going to be saved? If so, then what about me? What about me? What about me, a poor, miserable sinner? What about me who has no credential here? Is there room at table for me? And that gets to us, you and me here this morning. What about us? And how are you asking this question in your own head this morning? Lord, will only a few be saved? Do you imagine you're in? Well, yeah, surely not my drunken, deadbeat Uncle Harry or those unwashed heathen out there who don't have the common sense to come in here and join us. I don't want to be rubbing elbows with sinners at a marriage feast in a kingdom that has no end. It's tough enough going to a wedding reception and having to sit with people you don't like. No end. Or maybe you're asking it this way, Lord, will only a few be saved because I'm not so sure that I'm one of the few. I'm a failure at religion. My spiritual life is nothing to boast about. What about me? Is there room at this table for me? Or maybe at least room under the table where I can grab a few crumbs that fall from the master's table? The last will be first, the first will be last. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect of the kingdom of God. The least repentant are the most confident of their inclusion. And the most repentant are the least confident of themselves. There are two kinds of false confidence, two ways of unrepentance, two ways of withholding your life from dying and rising with Jesus, which is the only way through the narrow door. The one is to be spiritual but not religious. You've probably heard that expression, I'm sure. I hear it all the time in California. It's a common place. I'm spiritual but not religious. It's popular with the nuns, and I don't mean religious women. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who do not identify with any religion whatsoever. They're not atheists, they're not agnostics, they're not anything, they're nuns. But they are spiritual, they're very spiritual. Some pray, some fast, some go on pilgrimages, some are very decent and honorable and upright people. They honor God with their hearts, but their lips are far from him. 
They withhold their bodies, as it were. They want to commune with Christ, but they have no need for the body of Christ, that rabble. They are secure at being invited to the banquet, but they have no need to show up. It's just nice to be invited. The spiritual are confident in their spirituality. But that's not our situation, is it? You're here. I'm here in church. The other way is to be religious and not spiritual. To go through the religious motions, to punch in on our sweet hour of prayer and be done with it, off to brunch. What our Lutheran forefathers called an opus operatum, a work being worked, just get it done, and it's done. It's like Larry the Cable Guy, you know, get her done. We come to church, sing the hymns, endure the sermon, go through the rituals, pray the prayers, make all the right gestures, all with the confidence that God is surely pleased at the sight. The religious draw their confidence from their religion. And where the spiritual withhold their outer lives, the religious withhold their inner lives. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts, their being, is far from him. And both are denials, they're refusals. Refusals to die, to die to self, to sin, to rise to Christ. Both are attempts to bargain and to credential one's way through that narrow door that leads to life, a door that you and I do not fit through on our own. Repentance embraces body, soul, mind, heart, strength, everything that you are. Dying and rising with Jesus, as our catechism teaches us, is not a once and done, it's a daily thing, daily dying to self, daily rising to life in Christ, daily recognizing that I no longer live, but that Christ lives in me, daily dying and rising through that narrow door, Jesus, that door that leads to life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the salvation of the world. Again, the question, will only a few be saved? I don't know. Or many, I don't know. Why are we asking? Why are you asking? Are you concerned that there might be some at the Supper of the Lamb who don't deserve to be there? <laughs> I hope there will be. If there's room for them, there's room for me. Hmm? Do you imagine that admittance is based on merit and not mercy? Then here's your answer to the question, there's only one who makes it through the door on his own merits, and his name is Jesus. And you can ponder that with the religious many who will be left pounding on a closed door with their credentials in hand. Are you concerned that you might not make it in at all? that the chosen few doesn't include you? Are you painfully aware that you have no merits to claim, no credentials to flash? 
then your answer is this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, takes away your sin. There is room enough in that death to bring a world load of sinners through a very narrow door to life. And there's room in the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. You see, to recognize your sinfulness, to live in daily repentance, is to know that you don't have a leg to stand on. You don't have a key to unlock this door, and you don't even fit through it. You have nothing to offer. You have no ground of confidence in yourself. You don't walk through the narrow door on your own feet. You're carried through that narrow door in your coffin. Carried through that narrow door, joined to Jesus, united with him in his death and his life, you enter into life over his dead and risen body. And the only confidence that you and I have is that set of baptismal adoption papers, as the pastor said to Fond. Those adoption papers that are torn and frayed and worn at the edges from being carried around in our back pockets through our life. Those adoption papers that were written by the Spirit, that were signed by the Father, that were sealed in the blood of the Son, shed on the cross for us and for our life. Those papers in baptism where God says to us, you, you are my beloved. That's all we have. That's all we need. In the name of Jesus. Amen. The peace of God that surpasses our understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.